fellow boxing fans around the world. Thanks for joining us once again for another episode on Talk and Fight of the Friday Night Panel, featuring a very special guest, Lou Eisen, uh, a writer, author from Toronto, uh, Canada, who's been featured on many broadcasts around the world and has been involved in the sport of boxing for a long, long time. Joining us, Tim Witherspoon, two-time uh, heavyweight champ, and of course, Mike Gore at four. All right, boys, uh, what are we going to start off with tonight? Uh, going to go, go to, how about... How, Two-time undisputed world heavyweight champion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, I, I missed a word. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I was going off script. Sorry about that. Two-time undisputed heavyweight champion, Tim Witherspoon. That's right. Um, They never said that to me. Nobody ever said that to me. <laughs> when you were the champ, you were the only heavyweight champion in the world. There was no one else. Thanks for telling me. That's the first time I heard that. <laughs> Thank didn't, you. Didn't they, didn't, didn't they, Thank didn't you. they engrave that on your belt? No, no, not un, un, no, not un, undisputed, nothing like that. They was just a W. That's the belt right there. That's that's a duplicate belt because, like I told the show before, I was in beef with yeah. WBC people at the time, and when they took the old belt back, so when you win the title, they give you the belt, then you got to give them back because they'll duplicate you one. They never did it for me because I was fighting them, arguing about negative stuff that happened. So, right, God from England got me that. But it, but it also in Ring Magazine, you were rated number one on the planet. So you know, I'm trying to boost that up. <laughs> That's true. You know that. Yeah. At during that time, right? Yes. Oh, right. That's nice. Whoa, I'm really happy. Well, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I can see you blushing. <laughs> you must got a lot of research. That that was really nice. I was I was really um, my head wasn't right most of the time. Oh, I you know, that, in the yeah. beginning. In the beginning of my career, four, 14 fights, I fought Alfonso Ratliff, Ratliff and stopped him. Everything mm -hmm. was going good. And then everything went downhill. After that, when my trainers started doing dirty stuff, I mean, my managers got caught doing something, and then we got sold to Don King. But I was going straight up that ladder, training hard and everything. Then after that, I started going back and forth, back and forth, and this is the results. But I'm still happy. That's good. Yeah. Only few people get to be the heavyweight champion in the world. There's only a handful. Wow. Yeah. It's true. I, I'd be curious to know how many were undisputed. How did I get to be undisputed? That means you got all the belts, right? Well, but, but it also means that Ring Magazine and people in boxing and the fans right. around the world who pay the freight saw you as the best heavyweight on earth. Okay. Wow, there's something. Anyone you, fight, you beat. I mean, you whooped Frank Bruno, you whooped yeah. all of them. So and Larry Holmes, but you never got you never got to you never got credit for that one. I needed a couple more. I needed five more months, or maybe another fight. Because I only I what 1979 I started amateur. I'm mm -hmm. fighting the greatest one of the greatest uh heavyweights, uh, you know, Ever. 1983, yeah. three years later. So it's unheard of. I mean, I'm not complaining. Angelo Dundee always said that the sad thing about Muhammad Ali was we never got to see him in his prime. We saw mm -hmm. him at the beginning, and then he wow. said by the time he his title was stolen from him by the criminals that ran the New York State Boxing Commission and all these sanctioning alphabet bodies that are full of criminals, they yeah. stole Ali, and all Ali had done was stand up for his religious beliefs and nothing else. And and they stole the title from him. He can't. He came back. He's still the best in the world, but he wasn't. He wasn't Superman anymore. He'd lost one step. Mm, so I can feel played, that. I can yeah. feel that. Yep. So and you knew because you were with him all the time. Well, I, yeah. When he fought Larry, and before that, yeah, and I had a privilege to be with him, and that was great. And now we talking. I'm not complaining, man. I'm ha I'm happy. I you know been been involved with all that stuff and. I don't think I'm God because he helped me. He let me be a part of this. That's cool. Yeah, he was the greatest person I've ever met in my life. There was no one like him. Ali, wow. yes. Yeah, he, yes. Was, he was electric. When we had the podcast before, I was telling him about um, they had a security right near the kitchen, and he wouldn't, and the security wouldn't let nobody buy. Mm -hmm. they, um, one of them snuck around and told and knocked on his door. And then he he uh he let them all come in, and he told the security to leave them. He was sleeping, 
and then started playing wow. card tricks, like I told on one of the shows we had. Yeah, man, yeah. he went up a kind. He got up out of his. He was sleeping. He was tired, and somebody snuck by. Him. They woke him up. He said, "Leave him alone." That's a chant right there. When I got to tell you, years ago, I was in Montreal, and I was crossing the street going east. Wayne Gretzky, the famous hockey player, was walking yeah. out. But he had 30, he had like 25, 30 bodyguards with him. They wouldn't let people, they wouldn't let me and other people get onto the crosswalk. And I said, I don't care about Gretzky. I just want to get onto the crosswalk. Yeah, right. Well, we don't allow it. I said, you know, Ali doesn't do that. And he's he don't. Oh, he's man on earth. And I'll be telling everybody, people. I'll be talking just like you. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no problem. I just said, Ali's the most famous and beloved human being on earth. And he doesn't have 30 people around him doing that. You know? I that's that's a, right on the pin, right on the pinhead. Yup, yup. Uh, I talked about that before. He don't want that around him. No, he don't hey, want Lou. It around him. Hey Lou, while 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 this is top of mind, recall the story that you told me on the phone the other day about Marvis Marvin Hagler and the autograph, the famous autograph. Oh, I, I I um, it, it's funny because I I was at the Boxing Hall of Fame with Angelo in Canada, New York, and. So I'm there, and Hagler, I loved Hagler, but Hagler depended on the mood you got him in. And you could understand that because they never left him alone. And Tim being a world, the world champion would know that. Sometimes it's like, you know what? I'm eating or I'm doing this. Just give me a minute, please. And I'm standing, I'm in the washroom with him. It's about 10 in the morning. We're at the urinal, and we're talking, and some guy taps him on the shoulder while he's urinating. <laughs> And I have your autograph. And he looked at him and he said, are you serious? What with this? And, and, and Hagler looked at me and he said, this is what gets me angry. It annoys me. I almost said, you mean what pisses you off? But I didn't want to say <laughs> I didn't want to annoy him anymore. And I said to the person, you want, you might, you, you should, best thing would probably be to leave. He goes, yeah, but I want an autograph. I said, right now, what you're doing is incredibly rude, and it's probably best for you to leave. And Hagler shook his head, and he said, "I, you know, how can a person not know that? And Angela told me one time at Caesar's Palace, Joe Lewis was in a stall in the washroom. He's sitting on the toilet, and as he's going to the washroom, someone opens the door and asks for his autograph, and Lewis actually signed it. Now, that's bad. And but he Ali, but Ali, Ali, if... I'll, oh no! Finish real quick. Finish. Oh no! I'm just saying. But he said that was Joe Lewis. That's why people love Joe Lewis. But if Ali was in the urinal and somebody tapped him, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. Have, he wouldn't have got frustrated. He would have just looked around and then maybe played with him and with this afterwards. Oh yeah. Um, but Marvin Hagler is a, to me was is different. He's straight up and he's like not, not mean. Um, I was in his presence several times. And he, yeah, I, I I can understand. It's the mood you in at that time. But I I could never do I could never like do that. I can't. Right, but he, he reason. And I I noticed with, like when I first met Hagler, I, I sort of got into trouble with Angelo because I said I thought you beat Ray Leonard, and then I didn't know Angelo was behind me. He said, "Whose team are you on?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Sorry," but, and Hagler said, "Well, that you know," I said, "I I I." I agree. And Hagler, he was still angry about it, but he, he didn't want to give, he said his way of getting back, and I like Ray Leonard a lot, he said his way of getting back at Ray Leonard was he promised him that he would do a rematch, he would think about it, and after a year he called a press conference and retired. And he mm. said, when he was supposed to fight Ray originally, Ray did the same thing to him. I'm going to fight you, this will be the way we'll do it, we'll make a ton of money. And then after a year, he had a press conference and, and Hagler showed up. He was sitting in the first row, thought it was going to be announced to fight. And Ray said, no, I retire. And the look in Hagler's face, you could just see the anger building up in him. But but most of the time that I saw him there, he I, he was easy. You know, he loved other fighters. He was easy to get along with. And, and uh, he had a great time with the fans. It's just when people piled on and it, it always bothered me for instance at the banquet we're at a uh, um, you go because i know tim you've been there but you go to the there's a place you sit before you go to the saturday night banquet it, when you're in canastota and it's just a, a party you get together of all the fans and all the people that are there and the champions and i was sitting between angelo just after his wife died 
and Jake LaMotta. And people came up to Jake and they didn't say, how are you, to anyone, to him, or, or didn't even say that to Mike Weaver or Ray Mercer or anyone. They just shoved paper in their face, sign it. That's what they did. And I thought that was so incredibly rude. And, and LaMotta said, I'm, I'm used to it. But I, I thought people would, maybe it's because I'm Canadian, people would say, how are you? How are you doing? You know, it's great to see you. But a lot of times, and with Hagler, and I'm sure with Tim at times too, this, here, sign it. And that's just rude. I mean, the person's a world champion. They, you, I don't really, I don't really, um, if somebody says, hey, can you, can you sign this? They don't have to say, um, how you doing? Because I'm not thinking like that in the beginning. Right. Because it's autographed. No, but you have a lot, there's a lot of merit in what you were saying. But for me, like if somebody said, sign this, can you sign this without saying hello? I think saying hello is too much time. Hello, right. can you sign this? You know, <laughs> can, well, what I'm just saying talking stuff, but I would do it. I would do it right. and sign it and stuff. I but guys, that's guys like Ali and Sugar Ray that have a lot of followers and stuff. I'm sure they get aggravated. I, I was popular and people knew me, but not as like not as like them. And then you say my name too, well, this is when they know. But a lot of those guys all day long get hassled, and I understand they get caught off ball, off guard. So. That's right. what I'm thinking. Yeah, they get caught, caught off guard. I wonder if, if I was all day long um, doing it. It happened to me in England, but I just kept on doing it. I kept on signing. I didn't get frustrated. But I can understand Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray. And Ali never did it, though. No, he was always like, I mean, in great yeah. mood. But the thing, I guess, about Lamada was the fact that at the time he was 90 years old. And, and oh, Angelo, wow. Angelo was, I think, 85, and his wife had just died. So, wow. People kept coming up to him and said, Tangential, how how's Helen doing? And I would take them to the side and say, Helen just okay. you know. So rather than just I mean, they the fighters always showed great respect for the uh, for the people there. But sometimes I you would see fans getting autographs and then turning around and trying to sell them to other people. And I just thought, you know, that's not that's not why the fighters are there. Angela was born five minutes, three minutes, five minutes walk from where I was born and raised. Really? Yeah, South Philly. Angelo, he was born walking distance. Italian neighbors here in the Irish, the Irish in back, and the Italian neighborhoods wow. to the left and to the to the front. Angelo yeah, Moreno. Yeah. I would say I would say five minutes away. Wow. Philadelphia has probably produced with New York more great world champions than any other city in the world. Mm. Going back a couple hundred years, right? You know, I mean, they produced the most incredible fighters ever in every weight class. They're one of the, I think New York and Philly are the only cities that can claim world champions in every weight class. Well, wow. Wow. Story, he's a historian. Yeah, wow. I listened to it. I was up there in Canada with them bad, the bad Hilton brothers. Oh, yeah. Ooh, they lo I love them. I love them. They love me, man. I love we was in camp together, but those boys don't back away. I don't yeah. care what color, what yeah. they will not back up. No, I'm good oh, friends with them, Matthew and Davey, and, they, and yeah. they're super tough. Stewart passed away. Right, when he was young, motorcycle accident. He was supposed yeah, to be Stewart, Stewart, Stewart was kind of like a mean, Stewart was kind of like, like angry or something and, and everything. We was in training camp and um I, um he, he was kinda like aggressive and 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 like why you shaking your head like you know him, right? You know him? No, I didn't know him, but I knew of him. Oh. I, I know his brothers really well. And I yeah, know was, that Stuart was angry a lot. Yeah, I know that with Matthew fought another Philadelphian great fighter Buster Drayton. But I grew up in the same neighborhood, yeah, two blocks away. Buster Wonderful Drayton. Fighter. And and uh, I said to Matt, people don't realize when they speak to you, Tim, that when they're talking about your fights, they'll mention things to you that they remember, not realizing that you know because you were in the fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That moment when you hit this guy, yeah, I know. I was the guy that hit the guy. And yeah. I, was, I was mentioning when he dropped Drayton in the first round with that right hand. I thought he killed him. You're talking about Matthews. Yeah. and Matthews was tough. When we was in Don King's camp. Oh man, he was banging. Davy was a good boxer, but Matthews, he could punch. He stepped right to you. Go ahead, finish. And I he dropped him. And Matthews said to me, "Yeah, it would have been a perfect fight, except Buster had the nerve, the gall to get up, and then fight his heart out for fifteen yeah. rounds." 
Wow. He kept wow. saying, no, you don't. No, you're not going to. I'm not allowing this. And that was that's a great who, that's, who, that's who took me to the gym first, Buster. Wow. Me, me and Kenny Reese. Me, Kenny Reese, was, who was a fighter, too. Bam, bam. Um, no, no, Kenny Reese, he never okay. finished because I think he got, you know, the eye situation. But when I first went into the gym, that's why I went in the gym with him and a guy named Keith Davis. He was a football player. He passed away. He was my one of my best friends. They passed away about about seven, about a year ago, I guess. But Buster, right. that's who I first went in. We went in with Buster Drayton. And he used to spar with Hagler. He used to train with Hagler. Didn't he? Yeah. And so he, did I, Bernard, Bernard Hopkins' uncle, Artie McLeod. He, right. I don't know if you remember Artie McLeod. He had gray he eyes. Yeah. He, yeah, he can really rumble. He slipped, bang, boom, boom, bang. Bernard he, just like, boom, 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 boom. But Artie, get right in your face. Boom, 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 bam. I know that uh, Bam Bam Hines also is another great Philly fighter. Won the world. Philly Bam Bam, yeah. yeah. He trains at he trains at James Shula Memorial Gym. Remember James Shula? Yeah. Shula? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That, that's that's yeah. where he that's where um he he be up there. Angelo thought that Hopkins would be world champion for all time, forever, because he said when he was fighting there was no better trained or more disciplined fighter than Bernard Hopkins. He was disciplined. Yeah. <laughs> he said he was brilliant. He he outfought his opponents. He was like a chess master. He was five to ten moves ahead of everyone. All kinds. Something, of something we discussed a couple of episodes ago, though, Lou, was uh, the intangibles within uh, a match itself. So you may be trained to the best of your ability, you may have the greatest skills, but all of a sudden, uh, who who is it we were talking about who dropped his hands? Oh, it was Tyson Fury who who dropped his hands and we're saying we're sure he wasn't trained to do that. Uh, <laughs> so that. So there are these intangibles within within the the match uh, within these rounds. Could you could you comment on that? Maybe yeah. More? Well, you, the most famous fight for that, you have to go back to Jack Dempsey when he fought Jack Sharkey. He was coming. He had to win this fight to get another shot at Gene Tunney. He took his title, and Tunney got he he hit Sharkey a punch, and Sharkey dropped his hands, put his hands on his hips, and turned to the ref and said, "That was low. You know, you I can't believe you're not going to take a point." And Dempsey knocked him out with the left hook. <laughs> And Dempsey said, what did he do, wait for an engraved invitation to hit him again? It's boxing. Wow. You don't drop your hands. If you drop your hands, you're telling me you want me to break your head open. And that's what I did. And you see that in fights. Uh, Floyd Mayweather, when he fought Victor Ortiz. Yeah, I, that was. I couldn't believe they got on Floyd's back because I thought Ortiz flagrantly headbutted him. He should have been disqualified for that. Then he apologized like six times. And then Joe Cortez wants away. And what does Ortiz do? He goes to apologize again. Mayweather did nothing wrong. This was ridiculous. You got to keep your hands up at all times. Yeah. And and and, and it's it's like you said. It's it's the intangibles. When Ali fought Liston the first time, the best odds you can get were seven to one against Ali. He, he it was not even considered a viable fight. It didn't sell out because no one thought that a young Cassius Clay had a remote chance. It wouldn't go more than. And then after the, you know, Angelo said to him, when you get to center ring for the instructions, you stand up straight because you're 6'3 and 3, or 6'3, and, and, listen to 6'1, and, and you're taller than him, and look at him in the eyes and keep talking to him. Just keep talking to him. And Ali, you know, after the first round, he comes back, Angelo slaps him on the knee, and he says, how about that? Still here. Now looks at the writers, you're wrong. I told you you're all wrong. And each round, he's getting more confidence. Liston was stronger. Ali fought a lot of guys that were stronger. But it's smart. You know, it's knowing what to do in the ring. That's what made Tim great. When, when Ray Leonard did the color commentary for Hagler versus Mustafa Hamshow, Hagler destroyed Hamshow. And Tim Reed, the announcer, said, well, Hamshow has guts. And Ray Leonard said, guts gets you killed in boxing. Smart wins your fights. So it's the intangibles. It's being able to outthink the guy. Your brain, Angelo would say, is your biggest weapon. Sure, Tim had great feet and great hands, but being able to know what his guy, guy in front of him is going to do and seeing his errors and, and, and capitalizing on them, that's everything. You know, you have to be able to do that and impose your will on the other guy. It's, you know, heart and soul. It's more than balance and leverage. It's as much mental as it is physical as well. Right. Right. As a matter of fact, I believe uh, who who was the fighter who was bad mouthing uh, Muhammad Ali at the beginning, at the outset of his career? Terrell. Yeah, might have said, 
might have said something about his mother. And uh, and, and Javrell said something about something about him. Cassius and, and what, oh, he wouldn't call him um, Muhammad Ali. Oh, that's right, Ali, that's right. That's yeah, right. he wouldn't call him Muhammad Ali. So and Ali had him. legally changed his name to Ali. There was no reason not to call him Ali. And and Terrell, who was owned by the Chicago mob, you know, he said, "Well, Ali thumbed me, Ali." But Ali never fouled anyone. He wasn't a dirty fighter. No, and Terrell was a dirty fighter, and Ali just dominated him. And he, all Ali said was, I legally changed my name to Muhammad Ali. Call me by my name. And Terrell wouldn't do it. And Ali just said, well, you're going to do it now, or I'm going to make you do it in the ring. And <laughs> Ali pitched a shutout 15 rounds in a row, beat the hell out of him. And that yeah. Ali that night, I think, beat just about any other fighter that ever lived. I wonder if there was a tactics that, was they smart enough to use that as a tactics against Muhammad Ali to see if they was mad, or they did it because they just wanted to do it. I'm not going to see um, maybe, uh, you know, because he changed his religion and everything. Maybe it was something right. against that. I don't know. But but why he disrespect them like that, you know, didn't call him by no his reason. name. Get, get in his, well, his head. Yeah, to get in his head. So yeah, it probably was, he probably really meant it too, though. He, yeah. He probably, because, because blacks, real quick, blacks back then, they didn't really take in Islam as much as they do like today. So that was the beginning, yeah. not the beginning oh, yeah. of all the blacks, but... But and some of the blacks didn't respect the Muslims, you know, they didn't respect them. Now they do, now they do. But back then, maybe um Terrell, Terrell was behind the schedule in terms of knowledge of Islam and all that kind of stuff. And he was saying that. So a lot of blacks was teasing the Muslims. Oh. Back well, then. Knew, yes, but I know also Muhammad was upset because Terrell had referred to him as Muhammad before long before the fight. And he refused to do it in public. Terrell was run by the Chicago mob. Maybe they did it, yes, him, huh? to get into his head. But when, okay. you, when you look in the book I have coming out, Unboxing's Greatest Controversies, in the Ali Terrell fight, um, uh, before the fight, they taken, they stripped him of the WBA belt. And oh, wow. these idiots around the WBA who, who, who were restaurant owners, just bigots, out and out old, white, right-wing, vicious bigots said, well, we got to put this guy in his place because how dare a Muslim and how dare a black man tell... And I'm thinking, how can you... I mean, today, obviously, that would be all over the world virally. Yeah. yeah. But they got away with that and they took his title. And then, of course, it didn't matter because, as I said to Tim about your reign, everyone knew Ali was the best fighter on earth. It didn't matter if they gave it to him or, or whoever, he's still going to whoop anyone. Yeah. And the way the WBA treated him, and they stole it because, not because of the mob told them to, because they were that bigoted and ignorant. And Ali, oh. had, okay. Ali, Ali had a return fight with Liston. And they said, we don't allow return fights. But when Ali signed to fight Liston originally as Cassius Clay, Liston's people, who were also mobbed, said, if you don't sign for a return, you don't get the original fight. You don't get this fight. You have to give us a return. But was the was the WBA run by Hispanic people back then? No, no, it was run by a guy named Ed Lastman who ran these delis. And this is how stupid they were. WBA knew there was a rematch clause, right. right? And the only reason they put it in is because Floyd Patterson fought and lost Ingemar Johansson, beat him a second time, and then had a third match, three in a row. And while they had three in a row, Liston still had to wait. And then Liston signed to fight Patterson, and they said it was the worst. Con Liston got like something like, you know, nine grand or ten grand for the first fight with Patterson, and they said out of which the mob stole that. <laughs> so nine thousand. Yeah, between nine and thirteen grand. The mob, the grand, but the mob just stole all his money, and that's why I think the second fight with Ali, I don't think it was fixed because Liston was up on his feet fighting but that's getting away from the issue the wba stripped ali of the of their title and what i wrote in my book was it, it all it did was hurt the wba and and lessen the worth of their title if that's even possible but that's, <laughs> that's, you know that's what they did and and then right. ali you know ali was where the money was it was terrell that came to ali and said i'm making nothing 
I, I can't make any money. And Ali, if you fought Ali, like Norton, Kenny Norton said, you know, you fought Ali, you had a career. You know, Norton was destined to. He had a son. But when he fought Ali, he got all this press. He got movie offers and he got more money. And, and Ali was able to do that for him and a lot of people. So the WA had made a mistake because it, it hurt them much more than it hurt Ali. And then as we saw in the subsequent fight and, and WBA named as their president, this is how smart they were then a guy from Toronto who ran the Ontario boxing commission named Merv McKenzie. This is a great story. Merv McKenzie was so smart that the Floyd Patterson title defense in Toronto against Tom McNeely. And everyone went to Maple Leaf Gardens to watch the fight, but no one could get in or watch the fight. Why? Because Merv McKenzie had forgot to license everyone. So no referee showed up, no judges showed up, no medical people showed up. And the fans said, sorry, we got to have, they said, we have to do this another night because the commissioner forgot. Well, you can understand he forgot. He only had eight months to get it done. I this guy. And these were the kind of people that were running the WBA. So it's no wonder you have these idiots, and then you have people like Tim, who goes in the ring to risk his life, and he's got to contend with these morons that ruin the sport. People that should be running the sport aren't these WBA or WBC or IBF. It should be people like Tim that were that are from the sport and know the sport, and that will be fair and honest. Not the crooks who sit there and do nothing and rip the fighters off. You know, if if Tyson Fury or Tim Witherspoon or someone, you know, wins the world heavyweight title, all these organizations, you got to defend against my guy in four months. No, you got to defend against my guy. Well, I can't make all of you happy. I can't fight four guys on one night. Mm -hmm. I can only fight one guy at a time. So let's sit down and talk. No, no talking. We take our title away from you. Oh, worth yeah, that's bad. That's not worth it. They're crooks. The right. sanctioning bodies are crooks. They've always been crooks. And, and the promoters pay off for... So that's why we turn fights on today and see, well, this guy's fighting a guy who let me look it up online. Oh, that guy's ranked 75th in the world. How did he get a title fight? Well, <laughs> manager paid off the promoter and the sanction body. Shouldn't There's a lot of money floating around. There's a lot of money floating around. I, I, I heard a lot of it. And um, yeah, you you know, you want to get you you want to get um rated number one, you stay undefeated or you keep winning. Um, if you're all the way back, oh, they, they make deals, and then you're up four. Win an easy yeah. fight, and they put you one or two. Um, you know, so you ain't got to fight the next guy, the next guy, then the next guy. They put that money up. You jump three guys, and you, it's your turn. And I think so, that's why everyone loved Ali so much, because he fought the best in the 60s and the 70s. He fought everyone. So he, he, he gave everyone a chance, and he fought the toughest guys out there. And... Back in the 30s and 40s and 20s, you could lose some fights and it wouldn't hurt you, you yeah. know, but they were fighting consistently top-level guys. Last week, I saw Edward Berlanga fight the Canadian Steve Rolls. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. impressed with Berlanga at all. He was slow. He was plodding. He was easy to hit. And Rolls was 37. If he was younger and had more of a punch, he would have taken him out. Yeah. Mm. But they protect guys now by giving them stiffs. And as Angel would say, not realizing it makes your fighter – it, it it hurts the fighter. Doesn't make him better. Well, well, economically and business wise, that's what they're doing. They're building the right. fighter up, getting them opponents and stuff. And uh, um, I was understanding now. I was saying, well, you know what? It's okay to um, to, to test them, test them up the, the ladder, give them somebody harder and harder. But then, um, if you want to be champ, you got to fight. The fight got to fight. Got the best. Got to fight the best. You yeah. know, but. But they pay. I didn't. I fought undefeated guys at like four and five fights. I fought Alfonso at Ratliff at fourteen fight. He was undefeated. I fought somebody my third, fourth fight. They was undefeated. Um, so, so I think that I think that uh, um, building the boxer gives them confidence instead of just throwing them in. Right. I think, I think we have to sit down and talk about it because skill, I don't mind. Right? Well, when I don't put a guy in front of him that's really bad, but put somebody that's compatible. Um, but building a boxer, but that's a skill, Tim. Don't you agree? Angel did that with Ray Leonard and and Ali and all his fighters. It's a skill to build him up so he fights somebody that's good that he can beat, but he still learns something and he yeah. sets a fight. 
Mike, you right. was going to say something. Yeah, no, when they when they start jumping up like that and it's getting paid, you can tell, man, the way the guy bounces back from a loss if he does, if not, you know? Right. He gets in that ring, you know, he might jump up three, four spots. He might get his ass whooped, and then you're not going to see this guy for a while, and it takes him a long time to get back to where he was. So, yeah, you can tell when they're really protecting these guys and they're paying out the, out the pocket to, to the sanctioning bodies and the promoters. It's seen, and it's just sickening, man, because you – you're not developing the fighter properly. You know, they have to go through these losses and wins to learn something. It's all a lesson. The whole game of boxing is a lesson from start to finish. You should always be learning something in that ring, no matter what. But what, so, what, what so, can't, what, hang on, what can't, what can't be overlooked in all this is what Lou said earlier on the podcast, and that is, is the fan, though, who's paying everybody's paycheck. It's, it's coming out of the fans' pockets. Right. So there's a, ba- there's a balance there between the boxer's needs and the fans' needs. And, and right now, I don't think, I think you all agree with me that the, the promoters aren't doing a fantastic job of pitting the best against the best right now. I and think they're they, doing a great job at it, though. But I, think protecting, they, I, think that, I think to build the boxer up, I think that's a good move, a, a good move. Um, but but the, the people paying the money, they want to see the best. But I do believe in the beginning of your career, um, you, I think they should have something like, like you know, don't you... If you have, if you put both of those, the undefeated guys, tough guys together, there's not going to be nobody down the line to really. No, to you're really, right. You know you're what I mean? Yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's a great point because Angelo told me that when when uh, Leonard and Hearn started out, Mike Trainer wanted to match them for fifty grand each. Seriously, <sighs> after their tenth pro fight each, and Angelo said they're going to make ten, fifteen million each. Let them both win a version of the welterweight title. And then they'll fight. It's too early to have them fight now. Yeah. And and he was right. So there's something to be said. You want to match him and build him up and build his skills and confidence up. You don't want to have a guy turn heavyweight and get right in the ring, you know, with a Tyson Fury or someone else. You want to build him up till he's at that level. Yeah. And, and it happens. I mean, Tyson Fury got dropped against Steve Cunningham, who was essentially a, a cruiser and a light heavy. But he got up. He learned from that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all fighters do. I told Steve, I told him, and I was, real quick, I was in England with Tyson Fury. I was in I was in Ireland with him. And then when I went back to, to Philly, and I went to James Shuler Memorial Gym, and he he was in there, Steve was in the training, and I'm friends with him. I said, yo, Tyson, it's tough, man. And I saw the look on his Steve face. I, saw, I said, oh, God, I had to say that. But then when he fought, he did pretty good. But I told him that's a tough fight. Yeah, I held a pass for Tyson. He could punch. And he was um, much bigger, much heavier than Steve. Yeah, much bigger, much heavier. Um, You got to give Steve credit for taking that fight. Yeah. No, we, Steve is, uh, his family, is him, his wife, and his kids. They're a good role model for for men that want to be a family man. Right. He goes everywhere with his family, his kids. I'm really proud of him because. There's not that many men, black men, especially that go around with their family. There's a lot of them, but Steve everywhere with his wife, everywhere they got a house, and that's why he keep he kept his money and everything because he didn't do the wrong things like a lot of the other guys did. I'm one of them guys. I didn't hurt nobody, but I just didn't manage everything right. That's all. I it's love my kids. When you're, it's hard to yeah. when you're young and you're getting all this publicity and you're fighting at the world level. Millions. No, he had the right people behind him and then he was going to church. See, he was going to church and stuff. So he was so grounded. It, there's, there's a lot of, no, there's a lot of things that stopped him from going in the wrong direction in terms of uh, like, like the money and partying and stuff. He was there with his wife. He married her. He with his kids. And I saw that. And every time I see him, I say, Steve, I'm really proud of you, man. And that, you know what? It rubs up on me. I was doing the same thing in a way. I ain't gonna leave my kids and stuff like that. But Steve Cunningham is a real good dad. Let me tell you. I guess I see I, him fighting and everything, but he's a good dad. Lou, we have some questions. We have some questions mm-hmm. from somebody sure. watching. Our friend okay. uh, Carl Carl over in the UK wants to know uh who your favorite British fighter is or was. And uh what do you think of Eddie Hearn uh, being the best promoter ever? I, I, my favorite British fighter would probably be uh Jack Hood or or Ted Kid Lewis, or the great Jimmy Wilde, the mighty Adam, the bantamweight who held the title for twelve, flyweight who held it for twelve years. Wow. Um, I like that, Wild. He he's not English, is he? Watts. Jim Watts, yeah, he's pretty tough. I like him. He had a great fight with Arguello. 
Yeah, was he? He's from. He's English or he's Scottish up north, right? I think he's he's Scottish. You're right. Yeah, I like Watts. I like him. Kenny Buchanan. Yo, Buchanan. Yeah. How can we make a decision? There's so many great, good well, boxers. One of the chapters <laughs> in my book is about Duran hitting Buchanan low under the low blow after the bell. My one of my aunts, my aunt Barbara, was Scottish, and mm. when my mother passed away, she helped looked after me and my sister. And I'd never heard her swear like that. <laughs> and she was red hair, green eyes, and she was cursing a blue streak. She said, I can't believe it. Duran hit him, hit him, you know, low after the bell. And it wasn't just after the bell. It was five seconds. And the referee didn't do anything. He, he five was, seconds? It, yeah. And you watched a tape on YouTube. And, and the referee, Lobianco, he awarded the fight. Duran, and about 10 minutes later, the doctor was speaking to Don Dunphy, who said, they said, is Buchanan hurt? He said he has a completely ruptured left testicle. Oh, my God. He'll have to go to the hospital and and have it have it uh, operated on. You serious? Yeah, and it, he hit him under the cup, and he was, he was throwing up blood. And can you feel it, Mike? You can oh, feel it? feel that shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh. blew it. After the bell, on a break, hit him, hits him low, and he says, Duran, he gives it to Duran. And Don Dunphy said, but the rules in the New York State Athletic Commission say that when you hit him low after the bell like that, that that's a flagrant foul. foul. Yeah. Well, you either deduct two points, low and after the bell, yeah. or you disqualify him, or at the very least, it's a no contest. And he said, no, Duran wins. But, and Buchanan said, I'll fight. I'll continue to fight. He said he would go on. And the referee stopped it. And and Gil Clancy, who was in his corner, said to me, he didn't punch him. He need him. He said, I was wow. less than two feet away. He need him right in the balls. And Kenny went down. Oh, and he said, no. if you watch the fight, he said, the whole fight, you know, Duran's hitting him with elbows, knees, stepping on his feet, headbutting him, everything. He said, that's the way Duran fought. And when, when I spoke to Duran, he said, rules are for sissies. What are you, a girl? A fight, wow. fight. And you I've never known him to be like that. That's the wow. way he was. I mean, in the ring. Okay. He's different wow. now, but I mean, in the ring, when you saw him fight or when he fought Ray Leonard the first time, I mean, he had that trick that Ray Arcel taught him where you put your head on the guy's chest and then you move it up. So you're lifting his head up, yeah. making him more vulnerable for shots. Oh, go in and go like this underneath yeah. the chin? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's it works um, really well on the tall guys. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm, I know. I'm, I'm one of the short ones. Yeah, I pull that trick. Duran was, I mean, all time great. You know, Angel said if he could have spoken English, he would have been as big as Ali. But wow. you know, but I was in his presence several times. He was really cool. He called me. He called me Poon. Yeah, Poon. We're Poon. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I saw him at the Hall of Fame once, and he sort of flinched when Thomas Hearns came over to say hi. Oh, <laughs> you know. Oh, come on now. I mean, he meant like this. He was yeah, like that. Thomas, yeah, he was like that because he was sort of surprised. But Hearns took his hand and hugged him, and said, "How are you? Great to see you." And but when you saw that fight, I mean, Hearns starched him in the second round mm. with that right, that hand. right hand, with that right hand, right? Yeah, that was a monster knockout. Hmm. I did that to a lot of people. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, you did. We <laughs> did that from welterweight all the way up to light heavyweight. I do believe if his defense was tighter, if you look at all his fights, he would just he would he he accomplished a lot of every he he accomplished some good stuff. But if his defense was tighter, he wouldn't have got he wouldn't have got stopped on a couple of those occasions. If you notice, he had no defense. He was You're an right. offensive king. He's an offensive king. Don't get in front of him. Don't you know, Angelo had this argument with Emmanuel Stewart. And Emmanuel said to me, I've been having this argument with Angelo for 40 years. <laughs> he said, if Thomas Hearns had great balance, he would, he, he, no, no one would have beaten him in as a pro. And, Who and said that? Angelo said that. Okay. And, and Emmanuel Stewart said, Angelo, <coughs> I called you every day for 40 years. I've had him since he was 13. I couldn't <laughs> get him to do perfect balance. I've stood there outside the ring crying, begging him. 
and, and, and I just thought he's a natural power puncher. Leave it alone. But you're right. I mean, he barked. I didn't think that was too much wrong with his balance. I didn't see him stumbling that time unless he got hit. Yeah, he just he was off balance at times when he threw shots or after he threw shots, but great fighter nonetheless. I think it just was a defense. The defensive um he didn't have the defense was his his defense was the offense, which is yeah. which I think is wrong to tell somebody if you you know all your defense, if you beats keep throwing punches, they won't hit you. When you right. get tired, when you get tired, you're gonna have to have that defense. So right. And Angela would say to young kids in the gym, uh, you have to know how to box because if you hit a guy your best shot and he's still there, what do you do? You have to concede the knockout and win on points and know how to have a great defense. Right. And I had a friend of mine who was a Canadian champion and won a New York Golden Gloves. Martin Mazzaro was a welterweight. And he went down to the Fifth Street gym and Angela took a, a look at him for a week. Down in Florida. Down in Florida. And he, yeah. Angela said to him, you're a nice boy. And you're a good kid, and you punch like a mule, kid. Yeah. But he said, I would recommend you don't turn pro. Why not? You have no defense, and you'll get hurt. And so my friend disagreed, and he got knocked out in his first two fights. And he retired, went back down, and, and thanked Angelo for his advice. Wait and a minute. I didn't mean to cut you off. No problem. Why didn't he say, let's learn some defense? Because and it was over now. Because my friend was like 28, 29 at the time. And no, Angela, but, I'm, but I'm saying Angelo said that he don't have defense, right? Right. Well, teach him it. Right. But Angelo said he thought it was too late to teach him because he was in his late 20s at the time. No, it's not too late to teach anybody. If you're well, 60 years I, old, if you're 50, you still can learn. I don't care. If you comprehend, you can learn. I'm telling right. you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just my opinion. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, it, obviously, it counts more than most because you're a champion. Oh, and it, Leonard, Leonard, <laughs> Leonard said about Duran that he was impossible to hit on the inside. He was a brilliant defensive fighter. No one gave him credit for that. He could slip punches. He could roll with punches. You know, slide with shots. And that's not. I mean, you did that, but it's not as easy as it looks. You know, it takes thousands of hours of practice all the time, constantly. You got to have somebody um, throwing punches at you, and and you have the defense right. You do have to uh, keep drilling it and drilling it, and then after a while, it just come natural. Just put it up. Mm -hmm. And I I started relaxing too much because I knew that the only time I get hit if I, if I get lazy or just and I started relaxing because I know I got blocked. I knew where my hands were supposed to be. And some right. of them fights, I just was playing. I, I just was attacking and keeping my hands where I should have been having them right there. Bing, bing. Right back here. Bing, bing. Right back. And then I was just like this because I knew that I knew the defense. And, and um, you know, um, I don't think that was a bad thing. But that I knew the defense. I could teach it right now. I could teach defense. <laughs> but that's why in some of my fights, you see me not really concentrate on keeping it tight. Because I know I'm supposed to soon the punches come. I'm gonna go like this. I'm gonna go like that. You know, I'm gonna right. do that. It made okay. me relax a little bit more. It made me relax too much because I knew I could block them punches. But you also had great hand speed and foot speed. And speed never slumps in the ring. Right. My trainer, I hate to cut you off. My trainer never mentioned to me about the foot speed and the foot and stuff. Nowadays right. they talking a lot more about about foot foot movement and speed move no speed and all that. Um, so my trainer never told me. He just put my my feet in certain situations. Told me don't cross them and just certain ways like that. But nowadays they talk a lot about foot movement and all that. They could be putting stuff on the floor. The old timers didn't put stuff on the floor. No, you, know, you did it. You did it naturally. So now they got stuff all on the floor. Having the guys do that, you got to be simultaneous, like. Like when you fight, you got to be simultaneous, like boom, right here, you know. And if you follow a guide, I think somebody will pick it up and cut that off. Like if you follow, if you do something all the time, and they keep seeing you doing it, they're, they're going to stop that. So you got to right. change up. You got to change catch up. Catch your timing, catch your pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but they talk about feet work all the time. I don't understand it. That's what they said, you know, about Ali. If you followed him in a straight line, you were finished because mm. he was too quick. There's a great story about Jack Johnson. After, long after his career was over, he went into a gym in Los Angeles. And he did this all the time. 
and he said that uh, uh, he would have people, he'd say, get your best fighter. And he, he, he would draw a small line. He'd stand on it. He said, I'm not going to move my arms. Keep his arms by his side. And he would have the guy stand 18 inches, 12 inches from him. He said, when I say go, you try to hit me with both hands. And they could never hit him. Mm. Because wow. his body movement and his anticipation was so good yeah. that it was just impossible to land a punch on him. And, I, and I'm sorry to mention Angelo so much, but he, told, he was there the day that Charlie Goldman discovered Rocky Marciano. Oh, wow. In Stillman's gym, he said, Marciano comes in, and, and this is like in the late 40s, just after the Second World War, and Charlie Goldman, Charlie Goldman was the one who said, never alter a fighter's natural style. So he said, no one, mm. you know, he said, no one ever invents a game just to be beaten at it. So if a guy is a tall fighter, have him fight tall. If he's short, have him fight from a crouch, less of a target. So Marciano walks in, and Al Weil, who, who was his manager, uh, sends him in, and he said they're watching him, and Angel's like, I want to go eat lunch. And Goldman's looking at a stopwatch and said, just give me three minutes, and we'll go. And they put him in with a guy who was a stick-and-move fighter, veteran of like 30 fights. And Marciano hadn't had a professional fight and so Marciano's throwing punches, and every couple of seconds he's falling down. And Goldman says, "Don't says to Angel, we'll go, we'll go for lunch. Just leave it alone. I got to watch this guy for at least one round." And Angel's saying, "I'm not going to wait. I'm hungry." And 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 as they turn to look, Marciano hits the guy a right hand, knocks him cold, fractures mm. the guy's skull. Guy never fights again. And so I said, "What happened?" And he said to Charlie Goldman. You're going to actually take him on and train him? He said, a guy like that who can punch, everything else I can teach him. Like you're saying about defense. Yeah. Everything else can be taught. A guy who's got a punch like that at just 186 pounds, you got to keep him. Yeah. You have to keep him. Yeah. And he would put him in the ring and he would tie his feet together. And then he he would say, say to him, turn at the hips, throw the right, shoot it out from the shoulder. And he did the same thing for George Chevalo when he saw him in New York in the 60s. He, he would say, George, you're, you're windmilling. You're throwing punches out the window. And he got him to stop. He said, put your arms in, snap the shoulder, turn the hip. And he got in the ring and he tied his feet and he showed him how to do it. Shorten it up. Yeah. And, and he said, George started to get, you know, George started to get more knockouts after that because he wasn't telegraphing his shots. And, and then he got Marciano to get into water up to his chin and throw punches till he got so he could throw them so quick. That when he was outside the ring, it was just he, he had great speed. Really? So he said, "A guy who can punch like that, I'll teach him defense. I'll teach him how to bob and weave. But a punch like that, you know, once in a hundred years, once in a couple hundred years, all natural. Wow. Yeah, wow. just a phenomenal puncher. There's just but, some guys are like that. They got that one shot, or they might have two. You know, they might have two, and you watch out for that. <laughs> you better watch Farming. out. Keep your hand up." <laughs> George Foreman could hit you a glancing blow and knock you out. Both of his arms, right? <laughs> yeah. Same with Joe Lewis, who I think was the greatest you know, puncher ever. Lewis could throw short, murderous shots, and if he hit you once, you know, if he if he staggered you for a second, you were done. Yeah. You were yeah. Out, and they don't realize that the reason they called it the bum of the month, not because the guys were bums. These were really good fighters, but he was so superior in talent and strength that he made great fighters look like bums. Yeah, that's how good he was. No one ever in boxing in any weight division could punch like Joe Lewis. I mean, mm. no one, no one gives him. It's it's sad today that people. Whoa, whoa, him. Ernie Shavers. Ernie Shavers. They say he's the hardest box, the hardest puncher of all times. That's what everybody's saying. Go ahead. <laughs> I would take Lewis over him any day of the week because Shavers knocked out guys, but Lewis fought. Lewis had 25 title defenses. I mean, he had better skills, I think, than um, Lewis had better skills than Ernie Shavers. Right. And and the is, this goes back years. He had Jack yeah. Blackburn, who was one of the greatest lightweights ever, but never got a title shot because he was black. And Blackburn was a, was, a, was a genius when it came to training fighters. Mm. He had a lot of champions. And when they brought Lewis to him, he said, No, I have no truck with a black heavyweight. They'll never give him another title shot after Jack Johnson. In fact, he pulled a gun on Jack Johnson <laughs> because when Johnson came up to the training wow. camp to train Lewis, 
people didn't know that in, in, in the 18, early 1900s, late 1890s, Johnson was in prison and called Blackburn. He said, I need money for bail. Blackburn gave him like five grand. And back then, that was like from 20 years of fighting. He didn't have any more money, but he did it. And when Blackburn was in jail, he called, he called Johnson. Johnson said, no, but I gave you money. He said, I don't care. You were stupid enough to do it. <laughs> when he came wow. to Lewis's training camp, Blackburn met him at the gate with a gun and said, I, I will pull the trigger. I don't oh. want to, He's not going to be like you. You wrecked it for every – I don't think Johnson did anything wrong, but you wrecked it for every fighter after – the black fighter that came after you. I mean, Johnson was one of the worst victims of racism ever in the United States. But, but um, Blackburn taught Lewis everything. So he taught him, you know, how to punch correctly. How, how, and Lewis said, everything I did in the ring was because of Jack Blackburn. How, no, one, no one had a jab like Joe Lewis. No one hooked off the jab like Joe Lewis. Once Lewis staggered you five, six, seven punches in a couple of seconds, you were done. And when he knocked guys out, I mean, they did. They went to sleep. They went to sleep. Yeah. But what he does, he takes his time when he gets you yeah. hurt. And right. That's what a lot of veteran days When he got when you, you hurt, hurt some, yeah, when you hurt somebody, you just take your time and get them out. Like I didn't do that with Larry Holmes. That's Go ahead. that's why I love James Tony. When when Tony fought oh, Jirov, he staggered him with the right hand. Next punch, left hook to the liver, brought his hands completely down, and then he dropped him. Yeah. Joe mm. Lewis, you know, when he fought Schmeling in the rematch. That to me is the worst beating I ever saw a fighter take in his life. And and before the fight, Lewis napped for two hours before the fight. Half an hour before the fight, Blackburn wakes him up and he's taping his hands. And he said, you can go the 15. He goes, no, I'm going to kill him. One round or don't count. I'm going to kill him because he knocked Lewis out in the biggest upset two years before. And Lewis said, no. And Lewis was already champ. He beaten Braddock. And he said, no, he goes and won. I'm going to destroy him. And they got in the ring, and Lewis was focused. He comes in. Schmeling landed one right hand. Lewis hits him with a jab, right hand. Then a right hand to the, to the left side, broke a couple of ribs, ruptured the guy's spleen. Another right hand breaks his nose, breaks his cheekbone with another right hand, drops him to the canvas, gets up, hits him again, drops Schmeling to the canvas, and then they throw the, the towel in. But you weren't allowed to do that then. And then... <laughs> The referee counts him out. But Schmeling was in the hospital for like 10 months after. He didn't oh, go wow. back to Germany. He, 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 was, he was that beaten up in New York. This was 10 the, months? Yeah. This is Yankee Stadium, eight to 10 months after. And people don't realize this is at the beginning of World War II. Lewis had the weight of the whole world. President Roosevelt said, you got to do this for the country. This was the fight for world supremacy. Millions of people around the world were depending on, on this young Joe Lewis. And with all that pressure on him, he took a nap before the fight, he went in, and, and, and those two minutes and four seconds was the greatest fighter that ever walked the face of the earth. No one ever, it would take an army to beat Lewis on that night. He was perfect. Wow. Didn't miss a single punch. Didn't waste a single punch. That's he crazy. Was perfection in action. There was no one like him, no one, you know, you look at the guys he beat, and when he beat Billy Kahn in the thirteenth round, in the eighth or ninth round, Kahn slipped and got his arm caught in the ropes. And there's no rule that says Lewis couldn't hit him, so Lewis stood back. He didn't hit him. And later on, years later, he said, "I didn't hit him because it was the plight thing. I hit him because I still was confident I could come back and knock him out." And he caught him in the thirteenth round. Kahn got cocky started the trade with Lewis and forgot that even an entire Joe Lewis could take <laughs> your head off. And he traded with him and Lewis landed the right hand, Khan's knees sagged, and then six in a row, and that was it. Khan was gone. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. I, I, it's hard to say, and hard to find anyone at any weight division that was better than Joe Lewis. I mean, people today don't, they don't give him the credit he was due. And when you look at the newspaper reports, written about him, all racist, all bigoted, you know, jungle cat. He was born that way. I mean, all BS, yeah. all vicious wow. racist. Everything he learned was taught, but he was so smart and so brilliant. And he had these great sayings. Like people think Tyson said it. It was Lewis 
who said everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> Mike got that from Joe. That was pro rule. And, and yeah. uh, when they said, you know, Khan said he's going to run and hide, he said he can run, but he can't hide. <laughs> he said, not in a boxing ring. And then I saw an interview with him where someone said, I hear you don't like to get punched in the stomach. And Lewis said, who does? Right. <laughs> who does like getting punched in the stomach? I never met a boxer who did. No one does. Oh, man. No. And he had a complicated relationship with Muhammad Ali because I think Muhammad was upset with him. And his, Muhammad's favorite picture was the one with him and Ray Leonard or Ray, Ray Robinson because these were his heroes. But Lewis would never really give Muhammad his due as a great fighter. And Lewis, as a great fighter, had to know how truly great Muhammad Ali was. I mean, Muhammad loved Joe Lewis. But but when they got together, Muhammad would would you know, play fight with him. And he'd always let Lewis smack him in the face because Muhammad, as, as Tim knows, loved, loved to make people feel great. But Lewis always would say to him, son, don't you think for a second you would have gone more than three rounds against me? I would have taken you out. <laughs> and and when, I, when I asked Angelo, I would say, how about Ali and, and Marciano? And he said, well, Marciano was 5'10", 186 pounds. Muhammad's 6'3", 220. He said that, you know, that fight would probably not even be licensed these days. It'd be such an epic mismatch. Yeah. But he said Lewis, he said, you know, he said Lewis could do things in the ring that he never saw other fighters do before or since. He was so brilliant and so quick and so devastating that, you know, and just like Tim said, when he had you hurt, he could take his time. Staggered you with a shot to the right hand to the chin, left next shot, left hook to the stomach, another right hand to the chin, upper. It looked back. beautiful. It looked yeah. beautiful too. Yeah, beautiful brutality. Put it together. <laughs> and when Lewis knocked you out, there's a story Bert Sugar told me that when he hit Nathan Mann, Nady Mann, Nathan Mann hit the canvas, bounced up, kissed the referee Arthur McCanty, and asked him out for a drink. And I, that's not true. he said it was written in the newspapers. I can show it to you. Bounced off the canvas, got up, and he kissed the referee and said, let's go out for a drink. He said that's how scrambled his brain was after Lewis hit. Wow. And when he fought Tony Galento, Galento called him before. Tony Galento, two-ton, right? Two-ton. And Tony Galento uh, called Lewis and said these horrible things about his wife. And so when you watch the fight, every punch Lewis hit him with, opened a cut on Galento's face. Every punch, oh. he wanted to take Galento's head off. And he he hit him. I mean, wow. You look at Galento, six, seven, eight shots in a row to the head. You're thinking, how did he survive? You know? I mean, Lewis was the guy that when he knocked guys out after the fight, would you like a rematch? Nope. Clear. <laughs> Not interested. And guys were terrified of Lewis getting in the ring with him. And they should have been he was taller than me. When I seen him in Vegas, he was big. He, I was heavyweight, what, like 200 some pounds, but he was 6'4, right? Well, he's li that's what I wanted to ask you. He's no, he was taller than me. I'm 6'3, and I was like, he was. He had big hands, too. Well, he was listed. Everyone says he was 6'1, but when I saw him with that. 6'1? That's nah. what they say, but I don't agree because when you see him talking to Ali, he seems taller than Ali. Yeah. So yeah, he, he hasn't been taller than that. Yeah, he was not. Nah, he wasn't sick to me. He wasn't. Well, you would I know. stood up beside him. He was tall and he was, his hands were big. He was like, I said, wow, Joe Lewis is a big dude. Angelo, he didn't have no stomach. He didn't have no stomach or nothing. He didn't have a stomach. Angelo said the saddest night of his whole life was when Marciano knocked him out. Mm. And this was another thing talking about racism. Lewis, because of the tax burden with the IRS, they were taxing him on flights where he donated the money to the Army Navy Relief Fund. It was a gift. There was no reason to tax wow. him on it. They agreed not to. And then after, they kept taxing him and taxing him and taxing him, which made him come back to fight. There was no reason to do that to him. It, and, mm. and it was finally Frank Sinatra got all these lawyers to go in and said, it's enough. Leave him alone. He can't it. it was a gift. If it, you, you shouldn't be taxing him on it. I'll pay the whatever it is. Leave him the hell alone. And mm. they didn't. They still would come after him. And and he, he'd given them money. But w when I saw an interview with him, he said that 
people blamed his promoter, Mike Jacobs, or other people. He said, no, it was my fault. I outspent my income. But he said, I came from Alabama originally. I grew up broke. So I'm getting hundreds of thousands for each fight. I couldn't wait to go out and spend it. And mm. he's, Mike Jacobs kept saying, Joe, take half of each purse, put it in the bank. Put it in an annuity or GIC because your career will end one day. But he didn't. You know, and, and it was unfortunate. But what a- I put I put fifteen thousand in Vanguard and twenty thousand in Gene Witter and like a dumb behind. And I took it out. I just ain't trust nobody. Now that you're talking you? like that, I, yeah. yeah, they they made they they helped me invest it, and I just didn't trust it. I was getting ripped off by Don and then people all around me, and I took it out. And if I wouldn't have took that out, I would have a lot of, a lot of money right now. That was, I'll never, I'm going to tell my kids, my grandson, if he box, put some away. Put some money away, please. That's what Lennox Lewis at the Hall of Fame one year, Andre Berto was there, the welterweight. Andre Berto. Yeah, and he was showing this gold diamond watch he had. And Lennox, who was being inducted, said, I, Andre, I like you. You're you're incredibly kind. You have a great smile. But financially, you're you're probably one of the, slowest people I ever met because you're in the prime of your career, but this is boxing. You could lose an eye. You could get a brain injury. You could have somebody robbing you. You never know. So that watch is not going to do you any good. And he said to all you fighters out there that have 30 or 40 cars, you can only drive one. He said, put your money away and save it. because You don't want to have to come back to this sport when you're in your forties and get back in the ring. And Lewis said, and Lennox still, he's got every cent he earned in the ring. He saved it and invested it. He didn't want to come back after after he had done it. And, you know, so many guys, unfortunately, ended up like that. But but in, in a lot of people, like Tim, in your case, I mean, dealing with a mafioso like Don King, you know, a guy who came from the Cleveland mob who, you know, robbed guys at gunpoint. I mean, it's when Don King got inducted into the Hall of Fame in Canastota, no one stood up. Everyone mm. stood up and sat on their hands. Not a single person stood up. I didn't Complete, know that. Oh. Complete silence. And then mm. Don King was on stage and he was doing his acceptance speech. And, and he said, um, and I have Mike Tyson here, it's from Manhattan. And one of Mike's people said, Manhattan, he's from Brownsville. You ripped off him, you ripped off how many millions from him? You should know where he is. And so mm. they hide to Mike when he's walking away. Mike said, get away. And he said, I just get away. And Mike's security guys just went, you better leave. Do not go near him. Mm. And Mike told me a story once that in Los Angeles, he was in front of the Shadow Marmont Hotel with Don King. And he had just gotten a bill. And it showed that Don King was charging 100 grand, I think a month or a week, for these special imported towels. Oh, boy. <laughs> and he's, it was a funny story because he was beating Don King up, and there were these two old Jewish grandmothers saying, oh, my, oh, dear, that young man seems to be very angry at his father. And he said, as I'm wailing away, hitting Don King over and over and over and over, you know. One of the reasons, real quick, because I know the show is, get, is getting late. One yeah, of the reasons, yeah. real quick, one of, one of the reasons why he wanted to make all his boxers come back to camp so he right. can simply do what you're just talking about. Take their money. They, right. and run the build-up. So, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I mean, he, sorry, I'm just reaching for a plug here. but he, So, which column did the fight, and he looked at his money, and a lot of us was doing the same thing. Larry Holmes. You know? Yeah. Yeah, George Foreman told me that when he came back after 10 years, uh, he said he, he, didn't, he didn't go out 10 years because of um, – Religious reasons. He went out because he had a 10-year contract. He had to sign with Don King. He wanted to wait till it expired. Then he got a lawyer who was a, a, a federal lawyer. And to threaten a federal employee is, is a very serious sentence in the United States. You go to prison for a long time. Mm -hmm. So they called Don King and they said, listen, George is making a comeback. How much does he weigh? He weighs about, you know, 375 pounds. And do you, do you want to book him? He said, no, I don't want to book him. They'll have a heart attack. And so when George started to do well, Don King said, uh, you know, no, 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 no. I want a piece of it. And his lawyer said, no, no, no. We have you on tape. We got it. 
you know, I'm a federal lawyer. You can't threaten me. Mm. You know, got to leave him alone. Wow. I outfoxed him. You know, wow, this has been a great episode. Uh, yeah. Absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, thanks very much for me joining too. us, Lou. Uh, and Sorry to talk. Just, no, that was beautiful. Hey, I learned a lot. That was beautiful, man. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Thank older you. than you, though. I'm older than you. You got uh, great. Not by much. I'm 61. Oh, hey. I got you. Hey, I'm so much. 64. You don't look hey. it. Sorry, guys. Hey, hey, hey. I had to make a pit stop there for a quick Gotta second. Gotta tell the girls that. Tell the girls great, that. Great, great stories. Great stories. <laughs> Lou, Lou, honestly, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you, man. You um, too. Honestly, you got you got great stories. I can't wait to hear more of them. I can't Thank wait to read your book, and uh, I can't you. wait to do some things with you in the future, man. Honestly. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, it's so, a privilege to be with you guys, and I got to tell you, there isn't a heavyweight today. I think, but Tim knows this. That could, I mean, Tim could walk through a guy like Tyson Fury and all these other guys, especially and Deontay Wilder. I don't if I was think in shape. Agree. If I was in shape. I if you're in shape at your age, can I say one last thing? Yeah, do it. This is this is like ten years ago at the Hall of Fame. I'm I'm with Angela. We're on ESPN Radio, and someone said, "How would George Chevallo do against the Klitschko brothers?" And Angelo said, "Well, he'd probably knock the older one out in ten rounds and the younger one in eight rounds. Why so long?" And Angelo said, "Well, he's seventy-five, so we take him." <laughs> That's my man, George Chevallo. I was I was at the thing with him. He <laughs> is so nice. Yeah, great guy. Quiet. I don't know about if you how much you know, but I'm, I'm very close to George. Yeah, we really. Oh, tell him I said hi. Before I will. We leave, before we leave today, I um, I just want to let all the fans know out there the cards to watch tomorrow, man. We got Birchelet and Nakathila going at it. We got the Zoo versus Gausa, and then we got Rakapur versus Juma, and we got the Martinez card uh, going on versus Warrington too. Warrington. Big card. I'm loving that one, man. I've got tons of prospects on that card to look out for that I've been following for the since the beginning of their careers. Also, on the Rappaport card, a lot of my prospects that I have been following. Did you say Rappaport? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Guys, 19 of the people that I have profiled on my show are fighting this weekend. So, wow. Yes, 19 people that I profiled, up-and-coming prospects that are doing it big, undisputed, or un, 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 undiscovered, undefeated, then they're, you know, and they're, they're ripping it up big, man. So I've got 19 of these prospects that are fighting on these cards. So, guys, watch them. Make sure you check out the fights. I will. And tune in Sunday, and tune in Sunday for the Knockout of the Week Award. Definitely. Okay. Don't want to miss do. that one. Don't want to miss that. And uh, to all the fight fans around the world watching, thanks for tuning in to this wonderful episode of the Friday Night Panel, number 70, with our man Tim Witherspoon, Grand Boys, and our special guest tonight, Lou Elson. Thanks for joining us, Lou. Eisenson. Definitely come back and tell us all these stories. It was great. Shout out to Carl. Thank you. All the comments. You know what it is, guys. We'll see you next week. Same time, same channel, new topics. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.